0: Well, as Vanessa mentioned, we are going through this ancient set of beliefs, what's called the Nicene Creed, a creed, a set of beliefs that the church came upon around the fourth century, where they were trying to figure out what people should believe and why. And the church were concerned that people thought in the right way. And thinking the right way is really important. Lots of us spend a lot of our time, if we're honest, thinking about ourselves and thinking about what other people think about us. And this isn't restricted uh, to ordinary people like you and me. Uh, This includes the famous and the well-known. The actress, Jennifer Lawrence, is famous for her role in The Hunger Games, And uh, if you've seen any of those films, you know that she's a a great actress and also bears an uncanny resemblance uh, to Sarah Lee Cunliffe, who was one of our interns uh, three or four years ago. And I'm convinced that Sarah Lee is in reality her stunt double uh, for most of the Hunger Games films. But unbeknown to many people, Jennifer Lawrence, um, as well as having this incredible film career, has also had a long battle with anxiety and insecurity. In an interview last year in a magazine, she said this, In high school, there are all these peers judging you, and you're never good enough, never wearing the right outfit, saying the right thing. I want everyone to like me. Who doesn't? Well, then you grow up and become famous, and it's the same thing multiplied by a billion. Watching herself on television last year being interviewed, Jennifer Lawrence suddenly had a fully-fledged panic attack. She said this, All of a sudden, it was like being hit by a train. This realization of how many people were looking at me, how many opinions there are. I'm sure people will get sick of me. I'm way too annoying. But if people start a backlash against me, I'm the captain of the team. I'm ten steps ahead of you. Striking, isn't it, that for someone who most people that our society and our culture would think has everything. Talent, money, fame, looks, and yet still she is so insecure, desperate to be liked, worried about what other people think of her, even though she could just ignore them. Now, if we're honest, those of us that live in what we call the first world or the West Spend a lot of time in our world thinking about ourselves and how we compare to other people. Even as you came in this evening, consciously or subconsciously, you have compared yourself to the people sitting either side of you. Maybe it's just me, um, but you can either look around. Come on, just take a look. Come on, just take a quick look around. And consciously or subconsciously, you already thought, well, I'm, 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 I'm better than that person. I mean, Ash, you know, who's leading tonight. I'm better than Ash. Um, but you look at Maxine, you think, I'm not as good as Maxine in different ways. There's a whole range of ways in which we spend a lot of our time. It happens in, in, at the school gate. It happens in the school playground. It happens in the boardroom where often people go into a work meeting and they're more concerned about what people are going to think about them than actually what the outcome of that meeting will be. Now, in the so-called third world or two-thirds world, where survival is more of an issue, they perhaps have more important things to worry about, like food and water and life and death. But in a world of society where often we take those things for granted, we allow ourselves the luxury of sometimes, and if we're honest, increasingly being consumed by what other people think about us. Now, the Apostle Paul realized that how we think influences who we are. It influences and shapes how we behave. Paul was influenced by Jewish culture, by Greek culture, by Roman culture, and they too recognized the importance of what we think. So too did the early church. They wanted people to think the right things, to know what they believed and why. And remember how and why these creeds, as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, were put together they were put together to try and answer some fairly basic questions. How could God be up there and down here at the same time? How could God be in Jesus and yet be in heaven at the same time? How, after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, when Jesus went back up into heaven and the Holy Spirit then came down onto the earth and lived in people, how could God be up there in Jesus but in his followers at the same time? And now Jesus was up in heaven, what was he doing? You ever thought, uh, 2,000 years, Jesus has gone back into heaven. That's quite a long time. We are told that for God, just, you know, a, a day is like a, a thousand days, just like a blink of an eyelid uh, to God. But that's 2,000 years. What has Jesus been doing for 2,000 years? In heaven, there's nobody to heal. In heaven, there's nobody to preach to that needs to come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is because that's why they're there. There's no miracles to do, because in heaven they aren't miracles, they're natural, because what we call supernatural is natural to who God is. So what has Jesus been doing for 2,000 years? And that is what is behind this particular phrase, the first half of which we looked at last week, he ascended into heaven, and the second half we're looking at this evening, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that phrase, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, mean for Jesus, and what does it mean for us? And does it answer the question that about what Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years? Now, the way into this is to think about something that, if we're honest, on particular occasions, we think about a lot. Think about a wedding. Weddings are great days. It's one of the things that in Vanessa's job and my job and Rich's job and James's job, we have the privilege of being involved in weddings. Um, And and most times I get to wear a white dress even at weddings, and I'm not the bride. Um, But often we do weddings and we do baptisms and we do funerals. But if I'm honest, and I got myself into all sorts of trouble this morning uh, with this illustration, weddings can create a sort of anxiety. I love going to most weddings, Um, but some weddings are a bit trickier, but there is that moment isn't there? You've you've had the service, you've had the photographs, um, you've got that sort of drink uh, that someone's given to you while you're waiting for the photographs to be taken. And there comes that moment when you're called into the meal. And there's that anxious moment when you walk up and you see the seating plan. And you think, okay, who am I? Is this going to be a good wedding? Or is this going to be a wedding that I've just got to get through? And they fall really into those two categories. There are weddings that are great and are enjoyable, and there are weddings that you just have to get through. And often it's determined by the people that you're sitting with. And now, being a clergy person, um, often weddings, it can be quite tricky. Because usually, there's actually a third category that my wife, Kathy, reminded me about uh, over lunch. Um, Because normally, there's, there's, there's... There's the the bride who comes to you and says, and I dread if a bride says these words, we know you won't mind, because that means I'm going to be sitting with the relatives, many of whom will be elderly, most of whom will be deaf. And I and Kathy will be seated with the relatives. We'll be with great-aunt Maisie. We will be with great-aunt Evie. We will be with Uncle Eric, who's the one that always gets drunk at weddings. And so we are there with the family. But we're not with the real family. We're with a bit of the family that nobody else wants to be with because we knew you wouldn't mind. (laughs) I mind. (laughs) And then there's the other type of wedding. The other type of wedding is when we get put with the people who are the pagans. We get put with the people who are the real non-Christians in the family. We get people who make Richard Dawkins seem like a pussycat. We get people who even as they are serving the entree, they want an argument. They want a discussion about the incarnation, the resurrection, about other religions, about miracles, about what happens when you die, about why Christians are stupid. I agree with them about that. But, but we talk for about, and it's just, I want a meal. I want to enjoy the meal. I want to enjoy the food. But then Kathy reminded me there's actually, and to make this worse, whether you're with the relatives over here with great-aunt Maisie who's deaf and can't hear you, or whether you're with the pagans over here who are really just sort of full-on and want to, you know, you're a vicar, it's a stupid job. It's sort of, you know, nice welcoming talk like that. Because all the time, you can see over here, there's the cool table. There's the cool table where my friends are where the people from this church are that I would love to be spending time with, and they're having a great time. They're having a wonderful time. Even the waiting staff want to be near this table because they realize that if there are any tips going by the end of the evening, this is the table where they will come from. This is the table that gets Serve the best food. This is the table that gets served the best wine. Everything gravitates towards this table, and this table over here that's the cool table, they make sure that everybody else knows that they're not sitting at the cool table. And I'm sitting with Great Aunt Maisie and Uncle Fred over here, or I'm sitting with the pagans over here, but there's a third and worst category that Kathy reminded me about. It's the one wedding you go to where there are other vicars. (laughs) And so the bride and the groom think that they're being so loving and so kind, and they stick you on the table with the other vicars. And so all you talk about for two hours are are the people in your church and the services and how many people come to you, and you think you've gone to a Christian conference, but you're having to be sort of so polite with each other. And still there's the cool table over here that's making sure that you know that you're not on the cool table. Now, that being said, this morning I was approached then by four couples whose weddings I'd gone to uh, <laughs> over the last 19 years, some of whom actually were about 16 years ago, and they were, were reminding me of, of the table plan at their wedding it was, it was obviously deeply ingrained in them because they could remember 16 years later where I had sat. I couldn't remember, but they could remember. I, I was also approached by at least two couples who were going to ask me to their wedding later on this year, um, but now I'm no longer required uh, to go to that particular wedding reception. Now, seating plans, while they can create that sort of anxiety, were also very important In the time of Jesus. Because where you sat at a meal in first-century Palestine indicated where you came in the social strata. There was a very strict protocol about who sat where and when. That's why Jesus tells his disciples to be careful if they take the best seats at a meal. He says to them, how humiliating it will be for you if somebody more important than you arrives after you and you have to give up one of the really good seats and in full view of everybody else walk down to the cheap seats. A bit like you guys in the balcony this evening. You have to walk in full view of everybody else And it's humiliating because what you're doing is you're saying to the whole of the village community, I'm not very important and I've got to go and sit down in the cheap seats. So seating plans in the time of Jesus were really, really important. The Last Supper had a seating plan. The meal that Jesus shared with his disciples the night that he was arrested, the night before he died, had a seating plan. Being seated on the right hand was significant. Being seated on the right hand was the place of power, eminence, intimacy. It meant that you were of equal worth to the host. It gave you equal dignity and equal authority." Now, being seated on the left hand meant something else. That was the place of a guest of honor, but it also meant something else by definition. If you were seated on the left hand of the person, you weren't seated at the right hand. You weren't in that place of authority and intimacy and equal worth and equal authority and equal dignity. You were simply the guest of honor. Now, historians have speculated about the seating plan at the Last Supper, which probably was quite different to da Vinci's portrayal of the event in his painting. If you look through the Gospels, you'll see that there are references to what happens at the Last Supper. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is seated at the right hand of Jesus. That's why he can lean back at one stage in the meal and ask Jesus a question. And he leans onto Jesus' shoulder or chest. He couldn't do that if he's on the left, because everybody reclined in a particular way. Judas, significantly and poignantly, is seated next to Jesus, but on the left. Judas, whom Jesus knows is about to betray him, he's seated on the left hand of Jesus. He gets the guest of honor place. Jesus will still wash his feet. He will still give him the bread. But then Judas will leave to betray Jesus. Simon Peter, well, he's seated in the next but one seat to John, the disciple that Jesus loved the best. And nobody wanted to sit where Simon Peter was sat. Why? Because that was where the servant sat. That was where the slaves sat. That was the bottom of the pile. And that's where Simon Peter has been placed. And even in that incident, in his gospel, Luke tells us that the disciples have a discussion, an argument actually with each other about who is the greatest among them. Why do they have that argument? They have that argument because of the seating plan because where they sit in relation to Jesus tells them something very significant about where and how Jesus regards them and where they come in the pecking order amongst the disciples. Keep that in your mind as we look at these verses in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, The Apostle Paul uses a phrase from Psalm 110 to describe where Jesus is now. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, this psalm, Psalm 110, is a messianic prophecy, It's the one that's most quoted in the New Testament. It's one of the Psalms of David, where the king of Israel is promised victory over his enemies, where the king is described as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And these titles and qualities in Psalm 110 are now given to Jesus, the Messiah. He is now the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is now our great high priest. Jesus is the one whom God has given victory to over his enemies. But the enemies of Jesus are not physical enemies or armies, but they're deeper enemies like sin and death. The kingdom that Jesus brought in was not a physical kingdom, and his enemies are not physical armies. Christ now is victorious over all the principalities and powers that stand opposed to God's kingdom, and everything that would keep us from living in relationship with, with God. And Paul basically says two things, verses 1 and 2, focus on what Jesus has done, and then secondly, focus on what Jesus will do, verses 3 and 4. So firstly, focus on what Christ has done, verses 1 and 2. Colossians is written to a church that is being tempted to go backwards into religion. If you read the rest of the letter, of the Colossians, you'll see that time and time again, Paul, like he does to some of the other churches, is trying to prevent them from falling back into religion. Some uh, false teachers have arrived in Colossae, probably from a Jewish background, and they're saying in order to be a real Christian, you don't just have to believe in Jesus, but you have to be Jewish first and then believe in Jesus. So you have to do all the stuff that was in Judaism, all the the washing and the law and the rituals and the praying. Do all that and then also believe in Jesus and you will be a Christian. You see, that's what's tied up in religion. The dictionary definition of religion actually is that which binds. And religion is always about doing stuff in order to earn God's approval. I wonder if you saw this week, um, there was a a news story that showed that Muslims are the biggest givers to charity in the UK. Now, on one level, that's quite shocking, given the number of Muslims compared with the number of Christians in the UK. But on on another hand, actually, it's quite logical. Because giving to charity, giving to the poor, is one of the five pillars of Islam. And it's one of the things as a a Muslim you have to do, along with praying and going on a pilgrimage to Mecca and, and various other things, the five pillars of Islam, in order to earn God's approval. Now, the Christian faith is the complete reverse of that. The Christian faith says we are accepted, loved, and forgiven not because we do good religious things, not because we pray in the right way, not because we use the right words, not because we read the right book, not because we come to worship in the right place, not because we go to pilgrimage, not because we do religious things. But we are loved, accepted, and forgiven simply because of what Jesus has done. Someone said you can distinguish the difference between Christianity and religion by those two words. Religion is about do. Christianity is about done. Jesus has done it all on the cross. We have to do certain things in response, but it's not doing those things in order to earn God's approval. It has already been done. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying here to these Christians in Colossae, if you want to avoid this false teaching that demands all kind of religious rules and observances and experiences in addition to your faith in Jesus, verse 1 and 2, set your hearts on things above. Simply focus on what Jesus has done. Jesus has been raised from the dead, therefore we will be raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God. Theologically, we are there at the right hand of God. That is our status. Theologically, we are to become what we already are. And the image you hear is one of sovereignty. Language around the ascension is language of sovereignty. But there's a paradox Christ has already defeated the powers and principalities, but this rule has not yet been fully established or realized. So a paraphrase of verse 1 might sound like this, set your hearts on and allow your imagination to be liberated to comprehend Christ's legitimate rule or allow your vision of life, your worldview, your most basic life orientation to be directed by Christ's heavenly rule at the right hand of God, and allow the liberating rule of Christ to transform every dimension of your life. In other words, Paul is saying in view of the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that he is now Lord of lords and King of kings, that he is over all, show that you belong to that kingdom in heaven by the life that you live here on earth. And let that knowledge of Christ's rule and his kingdom liberate you, free you, in order to live lives that are qualitatively and distinctively different because you belong to that kingdom and not this world. It's not about being what's been called heavenly absent-minded. You know, the sort of Christians who are are described as being so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly use. That's not what this is about. It's about recognizing who Christ is and in the light of that, leading lives here that are different. So it will affect how we live, how we think, how we spend our time and our money, how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people. It will mean rejecting what the world or other people think about you and focusing on what God thinks about you. It will affect how you think about your job, your family, your friends, your politics, your finances, your past, and your future. It is what we call in our vision statement, strategy statement, whole life discipleship. Because we want the fact that we're Christians to affect every single area of our lives. And the test, therefore, of whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're following Christ won't happen in this building on a sunday it won't happen at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock or at seven o'clock on a sunday in your place it won't happen as you sing a song or a hymn or say a prayer or struggle to stay awake listening to a sermon that will not be the test of whether you're a christian although even now some of you are finding that's quite a big test It will come at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. It will come at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. It will come at 3 o'clock on a Thursday morning. It will come in your workplace. It will come in your family life. It will come in your relationships. It will come in the way in which you seek to be a different person in the workplace. It will come at your school. It will come at your university. It will come at your college. It will come in your sports club. It will come where you seek to be salt and light In the world, because you know that you belong to a different kingdom, and that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Somebody put it this way. This is a resurrection ethic that refuses to bow the knee to any empire and its idols. It's an ascension ethic that refuses to be subject to the principles of normality. It's a liberated ethic that dares to imagine a world that is alternative to the present brokenness. It's an eschatological ethic of hope that engenders a this-worldly praxis in anticipation of a coming kingdom. What does that mean? It means that we live lives differently in the present because of the future that is coming and awaits us. Focus on what Christ has done. And then secondly and finally, verses 3 and 4, focus on what Christ will do. The rule of Jesus is real, it's eternal, but for now it's hidden in heaven. Similarly, Paul says, our lives in Christ similarly are real, eternal, but they are hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3. But what is Jesus doing between the ascension and his second coming? What has Jesus been doing for the last 2,000 years and is doing even tonight He is at the right hand of God, equal with God the Father, in the place of intimacy and power, eminence and authority. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He reigns as the King of kings, and he prays as the great high priest. If Jesus is seated at the right hand of God... Is he, if he is of equal authority, equal worth, equal value, in the place of eminence alongside God the Father, Jesus prays with us and for us. When we pray, Jesus prays. And when he talks to God the Father on our behalf, He doesn't do so from a place of distance. He does so because he's right next to God the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. When we pray, he prays. He intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is praying for you and for me when we pray. I don't know about you, but when I need to get a message to somebody, maybe it's a person of influence, it's really helpful if I know somebody who knows that person. I can send an email, but it's going to get lost. I sent an email to the Archbishop of Canterbury last autumn after he'd been to Fife to say thank you didn't get a reply from the Archbishop of Canterbury. It was a person, about seven removed from the Archbishop of Canterbury. I think it was just a general email that was sent out to people who send emails to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, I do know somebody who knows the Archbishop of Canterbury. If I really wanted to get a message to the Archbishop of Canterbury, I would actually go to that person because they're a friend of the Archbishop of Canterbury. If you want to get a message to somebody you talk to the person who knows that person best Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father when he prays for you and for me he doesn't have to shout from a long way away because he's sitting right next to God the Father when we pray Jesus prays for us And the result, the implication, well, it's seen there in the rest of Colossians chapter 3. Verses 5 to 17, it means that we will live differently to those around us, think differently to those around us. Whether it's in the realm of sex or materialism, anger, gossip, slander, kindness, generosity, patience, forgiveness in our family relationships, verses 18 to 21, It's in the workplace. You see it there in verses 22 to 25. This is no other worldly ethic. This is holiness in the everyday. This is whole life discipleship. Simply because of what Christ has done and because of what Christ will do and because of who we are in Christ. There's a lovely story told about um, Edward VIII Uh, Edward VIII was the uncrowned king. He uh, was the person who abdicated from the throne because he fell in love uh, with Wallis Simpson, an American citizen, and he chose her over becoming uh, king. If you've ever seen the film, The King's Speech, um, it was his abdication that meant his brother had to become king, uh, even though he didn't feel able to. Uh, Edward VIII spent most of his life as the Duke of Windsor uh, in northern France, and he was recalling in an interview towards the end of his life that his father, King George V, was a very strict disciplinarian. And often, even as a small child, when um, Edward VIII would do something naughty, um, when he was the Prince of Wales, he said this, "'My father, King George V, was very strict, and sometimes when I'd done something wrong, he would tell me off, saying, "'My dear boy,' You must always remember who you are. Always remember who you are. Now, if that phrase is familiar, and you don't recollect it immediately from Edward VIII, perhaps it's because you once watched The Lion King by Disney. And there's that scene where Simba is trying to figure out what it means to be the king. And Mufasa, his dad, who was the king who's died, spoiler alert, he's in, he gets this sort of almost, well, it's a vision of Mufasa. It's a spiritual experience where Simba, who's this sort of just out of adolescence rebel trying to figure out what it means to be the king, has this vision of his father. And his father says... I live in you because when he looks in the, in the, the waterhole, he sees his father because he sees his own reflection. And as he sees his own reflection, he sees Mufasa in his reflection. But then as he looks at Mufasa in the sky, in the stars, James Earl Jones, who's the voice of Mufasa in only the way that he can, just says, Simba, remember. Remember who you are. Remember, remember, Simba, remember who you are. That wasn't bad, was it? Um, (laughs) And that's the point. That's what Colossians chapter 3 is actually trying to say. Paul is saying to the Christians at Colossae, remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done remember what Christ will do. Remember that Jesus was born, lived, died, was raised, and then ascended into heaven. And now he's ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And because through that act he has been vindicated, you and I are not ordinary people. You and I are not normal people. You and I are people, sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You and I have an advocate in heaven who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, who when we pray, prays for us. And he does not pray from a distance because he's seated right next to the throne of God the Father himself. Remember what Christ has done. Remember what Christ will do. And remember who you are. And as we remember, let us live those lives that are different and distinctive. Because we belong to a different kingdom.